All right, again, if you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 20 is where we'll be tonight, verses 12 through 20. And as you're turning there, let me open up my Bible here. As you're turning there, just consider for a moment the glory of God. Just, you know, however you need to do that, just consider the glory of God. His splendor, majesty, honor, perfection, beauty, his fullness, his glory. You remember in Exodus 33 where, where Moses, you know, was basically saying, hey, Lord, if you don't go with us, we don't want to go forward and things like that. And, and then Moses kind of keeps the conversation going and basically then says, I want to see your glory. I want to see your glory. And, of course, the Lord says, I'll let my goodness pass before you, but if you tr truly were to see my glory, you could not see me and live. And so he kind of hides it right in the cleft of the rock. You remember that? And, and just kind of passes. And, and Moses just kind of gets a little glimpse, almost just a glimpse of his glory. But then you arrive in like John chapter 1. John chapter 1, where John tells us that the word who was with God in the beginning and who was God in the beginning became flesh and made his dwelling, his home, his presence among us. And so even your first point here, John 1, 14, we have seen his glory, is what John writes. What Moses longed to see, what we long to see, John is saying we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So Jesus, this human being, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, people knew his, his dad, uh, you know, the carpenter, Joseph, right? And they knew his mother, Mary. They knew his brothers, his family. Jesus, this human being, as we read all throughout the New Testament, Hebrews, Philippians, Colossians, the Gospels, he's the exact imprint of God's very nature, Meaning to sit down and have a cup of coffee with him at that moment in time, if you're one of the 12 or something like that, you're literally sitting down in the presence of the glory of God in human form. Not just any other human being, not just a good moral teacher, not just a good prophet, not just a, a, a nice guy from Nazareth, but God himself in human form. God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. And if we have seen Jesus, we have seen the Father, Jesus would tell his disciples. Moses longed to see the glory of God. For those who have looked upon Jesus, they have seen the glory of God. But in a way, Jesus had a veil over him in the same way that Moses had a veil over him when he came down the mountain, right? Do you remember that? Because he was shining so brightly. And it's like, man, couldn't even look at the guy. So he had a veil over him. And in a way, Jesus had a veil that shielded the world from the fullness of his splendor and power and glory and honor and so on. Now, 
when we read the transfiguration story, like in Matthew 17, we see that Jesus invites Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, which they wouldn't talk about this till after Jesus' resurrection, but they, Jesus invites them up on the mountain. What do they see? They see Jesus transfixed before them, right? They see his glory, in a sense, kind of the veil, in a way, being peeled back just for a moment to see him. And of course, they don't know what's going on here. Right? Peter starts saying something about, you know, let's build, you know, a little place for you here. Let's do this. They don't know what's going on. They're, they're startled by this. And so, but they see the glory of God. And I bring this up because John, what we're going to see tonight in these verses is John in Revelation gets another similar glimpse of Jesus. And he describes Jesus in such a way that, man, this is him in his glory and in all his authority and power and beauty and so on. But he's going to describe Jesus in a way that connects dots back to the Old Testament in places like Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel. He's going to basically these dots that will tie back to that and earlier events and teachings of Jesus even in the New Testament. And we're going to see that a little bit tonight. But just as a way of reminder, remember, even as your next point here, that I would argue that the book of Revelation is, as we see in verse 1, is from Jesus, about Jesus, for the followers or the servants of Jesus. So I would argue that the book of Revelation is from Jesus, about Jesus, for the followers of Jesus, meaning that this book is about how the prophecies and the promises throughout Scripture point to Jesus, past, present, and future. But additionally, as we'll see also as we go along this book, that it's also about the bride of Christ, the bride of the Lamb, as the, the messenger will later say in the book, or the body of Jesus, as the New Testament would, would put it, how the Lord will fulfill the prophecies and promises pertaining to himself, but also to his body, to his people, those who love him, who believe in him, and who remain loyal to him. Because remember, as I've been kind of arguing over a little bit of these last couple of weeks, is that Revelation's a very unique style of teaching. It's a very different kind of book that we see than all the other books in the New Testament. A very unique style of teaching in which we also see Jesus teaching this way in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5. Right In Matthew chapter 5, we, we see Jesus constantly repeating, hey, you've heard it said, dot, 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 but I tell you, dot, dot, dot. So you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that if you've looked upon somebody lustfully in your heart, you've committed adultery. Um, and so Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount was focused on bringing understanding to the law and how Jesus came to not abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, as he says in Matthew 5.17. You've heard it said this, but let me tell you what it means. Well, Revelation's very similar teaching style in the sense that uh, Jesus is focused on bringing understanding not to the law, but to the promises and to the prophecies throughout history, throughout the scriptures, and how Jesus came not to abolish the prophecies, as he says in Matthew, 
but he came to fulfill them. And so Revelation is really about how he has fulfilled these prophecies, how he is fulfilling them, and how he will fulfill them. So in other words, it's, it's very similar to this. Like you've heard this prophecy said this way, but let me show you how it's actually been fulfilled in and through my life. And almost all of it, in one way or another, comes back to Jesus' death on a cross, his resurrection, and really his ascension, and what that means for Jesus and his bride, past, present, and future. So John, here in Revelation, as we're about to see in these verses, he gets a glimpse of Jesus, and as he describes Jesus in this way, he's connecting dots back to Old Testament prophecy to show, man, this is Jesus, the one who has actually came to fulfill these promises and prophecies of long ago. And as we continue throughout the book, we'll see that how he has fulfilled these things, how he is fulfilling them, and how he will fulfill them. Now, also remember, as kind of just a, a recap here, that John is writing this book. He's one of the twelve. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He was in Jesus' kind of inner, inner circle. Peter, James, and John were very close to Jesus. And this is John, the apostle, writing this. He's most likely older in his, in his life, writing this at about the mid-90s A.D., while in exile because of his faith and message of Jesus uh, on this island called Patmos. And this book, as we've seen, is apocalyptic. It's apocalyptic. Your next point there. I always forget how to spell this. I can never. It's a lot different writing it on a whiteboard. It's apocalyptic. It's kind of that kind of literary style. It's apocalyptic. It's also prophetic. In its literary style. So apocalyptic is usually describing events in a very um, kind of graphic, kind of symbolism, unique kind of imagery and things of this nature. Um, but it's also prophetic, meaning it's talking about events that have yet to happen. Um, but this is an important point that we've looked at. It's also pastoral. So the type of literary style, the type of writing Revelation is, is it's apocalyptic, it's prophetic, but it's also pastoral. John is specifically writing to seven literal, actual churches. He's writing to seven literal, actual churches. These churches are all kind of Southwest Asia at the time, which is modern-day Turkey. And we'll look at all seven of these churches. Uh, we're going to look at all of them next week. Um, but he's writing these seven literal churches, and he's writing to them to make known what was soon to happen and to encourage them to stand firm in Jesus, to remain loyal to Jesus, to be comforted by the fact that no matter what, Jesus is coming again. So even as we looked at last week, he's writing to his basically partners or his fellow brothers and sisters in the tribulation, meaning things are, things are tough and things have always been tough for the church and things are going to continue to get tough for the for those who choose Jesus over anything and anyone in this life. Um, and so he's writing to seven actual literal churches. It's pastoral in its literary style. 
Um, and thus far we've looked at verses 1 through 11, but tonight we're going to jump into verse 12. And then next week we're going we're gonna to look at these seven churches. We're going to try to do it in one week. I don't know if that's possible, but we're going to try. We're going to try. Um, and we're going to look at a lot of similarities between the seven, but a lot of differences between the seven as well. And so, um, Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. Let's look there now, and then we'll kind of break this down. So this is what John continues to write. He says, So I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And remember, we kind of looked at what that voice said last week. Um, it finished in verse 8 by saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Um, and then later on it says, write a scroll, that's what you see, and send it to the seven churches, and so on. So John now turns to see the voice. So he's been hearing this, but now he turns to see the voice that was speaking to him. He said, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Verse 13. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. This is a Daniel 7 reference. It's a title we're going to look at in just a minute. Was like a son of man who was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. But then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. Very similar to the transfiguration kind of moment. And he said, I am the first and the last. Now that should draw your attention to verse 8 where the Lord God said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. So now here Jesus is saying, I'm the first and the last. I am, verse 18, the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Verse 19, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands, this is the mystery. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, so let's stop there for tonight, at least for right now. And here's kind of your next point here, right? After that Revelation 1.12, where we just started tonight. All the way through chapter 3 is one long, one long vision unit. One long vision unit, meaning 
that basically from 112 all the way to the end of chapter 3 is kind of for John this one vision. Because the quotation that begins in verse 17 does not end until the end of chapter 3. And so it's kind of this one big vision. And you'll see the transition into chapter 4, and you'll see kind of a break there and why it changes. Um, but starting off in this vision is Jesus in all his splendor, in all his honor, all his authority, all his glory. It's truly as though John is, again, seeing Jesus in a way, just a glimpse of him in his Glory, and it's a sevenfold, complete, whole picture of Jesus. And so that's your next point there. At the beginning of the vision unit is a sevenfold image of Jesus, a sevenfold vision of Jesus. <clears throat> and I've kind of listed out there. Kind of the seven things that John really hits on here to kind of show this complete picture. He mentions the robe and the sash, the head and the hair, <clears throat> the eyes, the feet, the voice, the mouth, the face. Um, but it is a sevenfold complete whole picture of Jesus and all these things. And it's an image, as we'll look at when we look at each one of these, it's an image that ties so many prophecies together using visuals. To ultimately reveal that Jesus, the one who was dead, they saw him publicly crucified, the one who was dead but who is now alive and has resurrected glory and perfection, the anointed one. This is who we're talking about, Jesus. He is the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He is the Christ. And as this image reveals, all authority, all power, all honor and glory belongs to to him he has authority over everything this is really what the new testament declares this is really what the gospel accounts declare is what jesus himself declared that all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me as we'll see even later on in john 5 he's already mentioning these things and teaching these things <clears throat> but ultimately this is to show these seven churches that the message they're getting in this book is not just coming from anyone or any source it's coming from jesus the Great One, the Messiah, the Lord, who has authority over every dominion, over every kingdom, over every power, seen or unseen. It should be a reminder to us, especially in an election year, right? We, we kind of get it real antsy and things like this, and, and everybody's talking about it now, and, and we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen with the economy. We don't know what's going to happen with this, that, or the other. Jesus is in control. We have to believe that. That's not hyperbole. Like he rules, he is king, even as he says in this image, he has the keys, even to death itself. This is why Jesus would tell Mary and Martha, listen, if you believe in me, though you die, yet shall you live. Those who believe in me, they'll never die. He has that kind of authority, that kind of power. This is who he is. As we were trying to relate to our kids last night, the things we talk about, you know, when we're talking about the scripture and we're going through our devotions and we're at church, things like that. This corresponds to reality. It's not just, you know, something we talk about over here and then we go back to life. This corresponds to reality. This image of Jesus and all his splendor and glory, it corresponds to reality. This is who he is. 
And it was true today, just as it was back there on that island when he got this revelation. And so, anyways, it's for these seven churches to know that what John is writing, as he's being instructed to write, it's trustworthy, it's reliable, it's, it's true. There's a lot of false teachings out there, but he's like, this is true. This is coming from Jesus himself. He is the one who has the authority to do all these things and to say all these things. I remember all the religious leaders like, you know, who gave you this authority to do this? Who, you know, what makes you think you have the right to do this? Jesus, this is what John is trying to say. This is who this is. He has the right. He has the authority to say these things. But one source put it this way. In this symbolic picture, the glorified Lord is seen in his inner reality, which transcends his outward appearance. In words drawn almost entirely from imagery used in Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, of God's majesty and power, John is using these uh, these words to describe the indescribable reality of the glorified Christ. These same poetic phrases reappear in the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, which we'll see, as well as throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, like in chapter 14, 19, um, especially in chapter 19. But the words of Christ give his absolute authority to address the seven churches, because remember, it's pastoral. There's a message to churches in this book. Um, and it gives his absolute authority to deliver this message. And the vision leads to John's basically transformed understanding of Jesus as the Lord of all through his death and resurrection. So it's a significant image of Jesus and his glory, which again relays his authority behind the message that he's going to bring to these seven churches, as we'll see next week. But let's walk through these details real quick. Let's, let's kind of figure out how does this kind of tie into who Jesus is, the, this imagery here. Um, but just starting at verse 12, though, before we get to the image of Jesus, we see the seven golden lampstands. The seven golden lampstands. <clears throat> so that's interesting because in Exodus 25, we read how Moses constructed a seven-branched lampstand. Right, Exodus 25, verse 31 through 40. That's when we're the, the building of the tabernacle and everything. And this lampstand would later symbolize Israel. But in Zechariah 4.10, we, we read about a recorded vision. A vision of a seven-branched golden lampstand that was fed by seven pipes. Explained to Zechariah as the eyes of the Lord which ranged throughout the earth. So, at least in Zechariah's context, the lampstand relates directly to the Lord himself. But Jesus here reveals the mystery. That word mystery just means something. That the word that he uses, it once was hidden, but now it's been revealed. And so Jesus reveals to us the mystery about this lampstand. And he says it represents the individual churches that John is writing to. Churches that are to bear the light of the good news of Jesus to the world. If, as one source said, Zechariah's imagery was in John's mind, it might mean that the churches, which correspond to the people of God, are light bearers only because of their intimate connection with Christ, who is the source of light, as he even called himself the light of the world. But they're connected with Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'll look more at that as we get into the churches. 
But anyways, that's so you get this golden lampstand, which Jesus says represents the churches. And then in verse 13, we see Jesus dressed in a robe, this long robe, and so begins the sevenfold image. Um, and John sees him really as this fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and promises of the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, which again is a term going back to Daniel 7. Uh, but the Son of Man, I just want to camp there for a minute because John brings this up a lot. Now, a lot of the Jewish believers at that time were hesitant about giving Jesus this title. It's such a, a unique title. I mean, this is like the one, the anointed one. But Jesus, even as early as what we see like in John 5, is calling himself the Son of Man. And it was a title, in essence, to say like, he is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is like the one above every name, like the name above all other names. And not only is he saying, in essence, that he is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, but then you get to references of the Son of God. And this is, you know, you grew up memorizing John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, right? Well, you beget that of the same nature as you. So, in other words, you create a chair, right? You make a chair. You, you create a house. You build a house. You make a house. You beget a child. You beget something of the same nature as you. And what the scriptures are trying to reveal about Jesus of Nazareth, who was born in Bethlehem and so on, and people knew his family, and they ate dinner with him, and they traveled with him, and they all that kind of stuff. What they're saying is that this human being is the only human being who's of the same nature, God. The only human being who can take this title. Um, this is why this separates Christianity from every other religion. Um, he's not just a good teacher. He's not just a good person. He's not just some historical figure. What the Bible is saying that he is God in human form. He is the Son of Man. He's the one who came to fulfill prophecies like Daniel chapter 7. He's the one who came to fulfill all the promises. He's the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. But he's not just a human being. He's also God in human form. He's the only human being who can say, I'm in the God, I'm in God, or I'm God-natured, in essence. Now, that's a big deal because, like in the Roman days, you had all these emperors basically saying, no, I'm deity. I'm God. But what the Bible is saying, no, Jesus is. Jesus is. And that's a big thing. And so what John is seeing, is here, seeing here is that Jesus is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. He is the Son of Man. And as the New Testament makes clear, he is the Son of God. And so it begins with this, this robe and so on. And this long robe also came with the golden sash. And so a long robe and a golden sash were worn by the priests in the Old Testament. Places like Exodus 28, we see this. But if you read like the author, or you read the book of Hebrews, we learn that Jesus is shown to, in essence, be our great high priest. He is the one with dignity. He is the one with divine authority. He is our great high priest. And then he sees in verse 14, his head and hair white like wool. 
as white as snow. Again, this is imagery, imagery that takes you back to Daniel chapter 7, takes you back to Daniel chapter 10. Um, and for John, the same functions as we read about in Daniel's vision, functions of ruler and judge ascribed to the ancient of days, right, is now relates to Jesus. For John, what he is seeing and described here is Jesus as the fulfillment of Daniel's visions, of Ezekiel's visions, and things like this. But basically saying that honor and dignity and wisdom are his. So in Eastern cultures, white hair, right? Those of you with white hair feel confident about this, right? White hair commands respect, and it indicates the wisdom of years, the wisdom of having seen seasons in life. And so it demands respect and indicates the wisdom of years. And so not only is it an Eastern kind of imagery here, but it's also a scriptural image to basically show that Jesus, all honor, all dignity, all wisdom belongs to him. And he's the fulfillment, again, of all this prophecy in Daniel 7 and Daniel 10 and so on. And then you see his eyes like a blazing fire. Like a blazing fire. And some people say this alludes to Daniel chapter 10 verse 6. And perhaps kind of refers to penetrating scrutiny or fierce judgment. In other words, nothing can escape his vision. He sees all. Seen or unseen, he sees everything. Nothing can escape his judgment and his justice. And so then you go to verse 15 and we see his feet like bronze glowing in a furnace. His feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace. And again, we see similar glowing metal in Ezekiel 1 and in Daniel 10. And in both of those contexts, the fiery brightness of shining metal is one of these symbols connected with the appearance of the glory of God. It could also represent triumphal judgment. In other words, that judgment belongs to him. He is victorious over all things and everything. So he sees, again, just another imagery of fulfillment of Ezekiel and Daniel, just his glory and, and his power and his triumph. And then his voice, like rushing waters. And, you know, I was reading that, and I, I thought about a short-term mission trip that we went on, on our last, at our last church to Costa Rica. And they, on our last day, they kind of took us sightseeing, and they took us to this place where there's these five waterfalls that you'd walk up this, like, kind of big little mountain here to the biggest waterfall, and you literally just work your way down the river, and you see another one, and then you see another one, and then you see another one. It was just, it was mesmerizing. It was so powerful, and the noise, and everything like that. I mean, that, in essence, is what John is describing here. It's like his voice is like rushing waters, like the power of rushing waters, the radiance of it, the, the beauty of it. Um, and again, this is similar to imagery used in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 24, and in Ezekiel chapter 43. Um, but again, so John is just seeing all of this, this imagery here, the way he's describing it, he's saying, man, in essence, he's, he's the one who fulfills these things. And all honor and wisdom and power and glory and perfection belongs to him. And so then we get to verse 16. 
So as we think about who Jesus is, this should bring us comfort no matter what your tribulation or trials are. Verse 16, in his right hand are the stars. In his right hand are the stars. Right hand is the place of power. It's the place of safety. And as we see, the stars are associated in the Old Testament revelation with angels or faithful witnesses to God's. And we'll look at it again here in a moment. Who are the stars? But either way, the churches and the messengers are close to him. He protects them, and he is the great one to do it. And then again, he sees this sword coming from Jesus' mouth. Um, and you're going to see this characteristic multiple times in Revelation. And it has connection to Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 30 where we see that God's judgment and wrath will come from his mouth. Now, Christ's judgment and wrath comes not in the same way as nations. Jesus, you know, as the author of Hebrews says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He speaks and it is. He, he brought all things into existence by his word and through his word. It's like he speaks and, it, you know, just look through the whole plague narrative. And you think about the parting of the Red, Red Sea, you think about all the waters crashing down, you think about all that kind of stuff. He speaks and it is. And he conquers the world basically through the word of his power. But not only that, Jesus conquers the world through his death and resurrection. And the sword is his faithful witness to God's saving purposes and his triumph over sin and death and every power and dominion and so on. And the weapons of his followers of us, his loyalty, his truthfulness, his righteousness, and so on. And so we'll look more at that as we get into the seven churches. But then he sees his face like the sun. His face is like the sun. And so again, just to kind of cap off the imagery, it's bright, it's powerful, it's strong, it's pure. It's clean, it strikes honor, it strikes respect, and just, it, it's mesmerizing. And, and John is describing it in this way to describe his divine glory. As Paul would tell Timothy, he dwells in unapproachable light. Like, we have just, can't even imagine standing him in his presence and seeing him in his fullness. As God told Moses, you couldn't make it. It's too, it's too mesmerizing and incredible. And that's, in essence, though, what John is seeing. Um, but it's amazing, though, in verse 17, um, we see that Jesus calls himself the first and the last. This is language that comes from Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 48. And what we find here is that Jesus is distinct from the Father, yet one with the Father. And again, that's going back to like John 1. The Word was with God, the Word was God. And so here, Jesus would later say in the Gospel of John that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They're distinct from each other, yet they're one with each other. Thus, that's how God the Father can say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, and Jesus can say, I'm the first and the last. To behold Jesus is to behold the Father. Jesus made that very clear. And Jesus also makes it clear that he is the living one. He's living. He's no longer dead. He's, no, he's not in the grave. He's alive. 
And that changes everything about today. I am the living one who was dead, yet who has now been resurrected in glory and honor and power and perfection. And he says, I hold the keys of death and Hades. I hold the keys of death and Hades, which is your next point here. Brings up your next point. No, I didn't put it on yours. Well, this was going to be your next point. That John's whole view of Jesus and his kingdom revolves around the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And because of that, he now has the keys to death and Hades, meaning he has authority over all of it. Um, verse 18, he says it was... This is what one person comments on, that, that, that it was through his death and resurrection that Jesus won the right to have the keys of death and Hades. The person goes on to say that keys grant the holder access to interiors and their contents. And in ancient times, the wearing of large keys was a mark of status in the community. And we see throughout scripture that Hades can mean death or the grave or the place of the departed, or the dead, the wicked. But in other words, Christ has the power to save one from the dead or also to send one down to Sheol or to Hades or so on and so forth. He has the power to say, depart from me, you evildoer. I don't know you. We see that in Matthew chapter 7. But just listen to these words. I put this scriptural reference here in John chapter 5. This is why I say Revelation is, is really just it's reminding us of ways of what Scripture has been teaching all along. Just listen to some of Jesus' words here in John chapter 5. Um, people are questioning the authority of Jesus in the context of John chapter 5. He's just healed somebody who's been disabled for 38 years. The guy's been healed, but he healed him on the Sabbath day. And so now they're questioning, why do you think you have the authority to do that? You're just a human being. You're not God. So Jesus, again, was doing this on the Sabbath. The Jew, Jewish, Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And in his defense, Jesus said to them in John 5, verse 17, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Verse 18. For this reason, John said, they tried all the more to kill Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is early on in John's gospel. Verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. Truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Remember, they're distinct from each other, yet they're one with each other. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. He owns the keys to death and Hades. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. He's the great judge. 
All honor and respect is due his name. So listen to verse 23. This is Jesus speaking. So that all may honor, respect the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor or respect the Son does not honor or respect the Father who sent him. Truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, this person has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because, here's Jesus self-declaring himself, the fulfillment of Daniel 7, because he is the Son of Man. So don't be amazed by this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and they'll come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. My judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself but him who sent me. So again, John is in a way, now what he's seeing is almost the same thing. Jesus and all his glory and all his honor and all his authority over everything, even over death itself. But this will draw, he'll constantly do this, he'll draw our attention back to how did Jesus gain access and victory and authority over all these things. Ultimately, is by submitting himself to the Father unto death, even death on a cross. And it's by his death that that's how he, in essence, gained victory over all things. And so... We'll look more at that as we get into it. But then let's go to verse 19 real quick. Verse 19, because this is where a lot of the debate sometimes begins. We've gotten this sevenfold image of Jesus and all his honor and glory and splendor and perfection. And to basically show this is the one who has the authority to say these things, to present these things. And then Jesus tells John to write what you have seen. Write what you now see. And then he says, what will take place after this? Or what will take place later? So this is where a lot of debate begins. Is Jesus talking about, right, everything that you see within this vision alone? Is it what, it, what Jesus was referring to? Is it the whole vision? Or is what he's saying... Write what you see now, write to these seven churches, and then after that, after the seven churches, then this is what's going to happen. And this is where people start saying after the seven churches, everything is in the future. It hasn't happened yet. Remember those five views that we'll look at again later on as we get into it. Um, but some people really debate, what is Jesus talking about here? What has already happened? What is happening? And what does he mean by after this is he talking about after the seven churches after this one vision after the whole vision of revelation um, and this is where people debate this recapitulation so this is your next um, little point here recapitulation equals the retelling of the same events or truths but from different angles 
from different angles. So, again, this will be part of when we look at chapter 4 and beyond. But this is where people look at this verse right here in verse 19 and how it ties into chapter 4 and beyond. Some people take the, basically fall into the camp of this recapitulation, meaning that what John is seeing throughout this whole book is in essence the same events or truths, but he's seeing them from different angles. Um, we'll look at whether or not that's right or not, but I'm just telling you this is another view that people look at. Um, but basically think of replays, and we've talked about this a little bit at the end of last semester, but think of like replays in a sporting event, right? If you watch, you know, the football games or something, you watch the Super Bowl, uh, a play will happen and then they'll replay that play sometimes for about 10, 20 different angles. It's the same play, you're just seeing it from different angles. Maybe the play has the same impact on the game, the same results, but you're seeing it played out on a different angle. And so some people look at verse 19 and they look at the rest of the book after the seven churches and say, really what John is seeing is recapitulation of the same event. Um, we'll look more at that in, in its merits later on. Um, but I wanted to just mention that because this verse kind of has such debate around it. But some people take it as just a generic statement, what Jesus is saying here, uh, to refer to the whole book. And he's not trying to give you specifics about the chronological content uh, or the chronological map of the book of Revelation. And so, again, just kind of plug that on the back of your mind. We'll look at it when we get into chapter 4. Um, but then verse 20, who are the stars? Um, Again, some people think it's angelic messengers, these angelic messengers who are basically in charge of their church to go and deliver this message. And most people believe that because angels, the word for angels appears 67 times in this book, and in all instances refers to angelic messengers. But some would say it's different when it's talking about these seven churches. Some would argue, no, it's just talking about kind of just the spirit of those churches, kind of like an idea or something, or where those disposition of those churches are. And then some people take it as human messengers or human leaders in that church, like pastors. And so, anyways, either way, ultimately John's vision is this. He's given a vision that reveals Jesus in all his glory. Ultimately, John's vision unit starts with a complete whole image of Jesus in all his glory and authority. And it's him, because John didn't want to mistake it with anybody else, it's him who is sending this message to the churches. Meaning, listen up and listen carefully what he's going to tell these seven churches. And if we happen to find ourselves... In any situation like one of these seven churches, it's a warning to us that the days are numbered, the time is near, so we better listen carefully and be ready to follow him. <laughs> now, I threw a lot at you tonight. We got a little bit for questions. Does anybody have a question or comment that you would like to make before we close? <laughs> anybody?
Anything I need to re-explain or go over one more time? Or clarify? <laughs> Just mulling it over, I see. Mulling it over now. All right. We got kind of the opening of this big, long vision unit. Next week, we're going to try to cover the seven churches. So if you get a chance this week, go read through these next two chapters and just read those seven churches. Look for similarities, look for differences, and look for where you fall into any one of these seven churches. And so anyways, I'm up here. If you've got questions afterwards, I'll close this in prayer. And if you've got time, energy, willingness, we do need some help doing some tables and floors. So anyways, that's just a public service announcement. All right. Father, we just come to you right now. We thank you again for tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for what you have accomplished in and through Jesus and what that means now and what that means going forward. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. And Father, may we truly be in awe of who you are. May we truly just be still and know that you're God and truly consider your power, your authority, your glory. Father, may we recognize that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to you. May we submit to you in all of our ways. May we acknowledge you in all of our ways. And Father, may we, as we dive into these churches, as we see how they might hit us personally, Lord, I pray that our hearts and minds would be open, that we take these words seriously, and that whatever it is you're calling us to do or not do, Father, help us to be obedient in all of that to your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, well, thank you all. I'll see you all later.